Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. A moment ago, I stumbled upon a most amazing phenomenon. Something so incredible, I mistrust my own judgment. Look. Dracula. The very mention of the name brings to mind things so evil, so fantastic, so degrading. You wonder if it isn't all a dream, a nightmare. Rats. 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 Thousands. Millions of them. But no, this is no dream. This is Dracula, the original terrifying story of a maniac and a man who lived after death, lived on human blood, took the form of a vampire bat, and lured innocent girls to a fate truly worse than death. Dracula? Oh, what, what's he done to you, dear? Tell he, me. He came to me. He opened a thing in his arms, and he made me drink. It's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to do the 1931 classic, Dracula. The studio, Universal Pictures. The release date? It was Valentine's Day of 1931. That's right, February 14th, 1931. The running time? 75 minutes. Of course, it was in black and white. I have no idea about the budget nor the box office. Again, they didn't keep exact totals like they do today. Leonard Maltin from his classic movie guide gives it three and a half out of four stars. His quick little synopsis is, It's a classic horror film of Transylvanian vampire working his evil spell on perplexed group of Londoners. Bela Lugosi's most famous role with his definitive interpretation of The Count. Ditto for Dwight Fry as the loony Renfield and Edward Van Sloan as the unflappable Professor Van Helsing. It was reissued on video with a new score by Philip Glass. The sequel was Dracula's Daughter. Rotten Tomatoes gives it 91% fresh from 46 reviews. The critics' consensus is Bela Lugosi's timeless portrayal of Dracula in this creepy and atmospheric 1931 film has set the standard for major vampiric roles since. So my introduction, as I've said you know, many times on this podcast, to Dracula was through the movie Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, which we covered on episode 125. Coincidentally, it was the only other film in which Bela Lugosi played the Dracula character. Now, I absolutely loved that film as a kid, and I still do as an adult. So, due to the love of that film at a young age, I was obsessed with seeing as many classic Universal monster movies as possible. And I kind of remember being somewhat disappointed as a kid initially that the original monster movies didn't have as much comedy and action as Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. 
However, over time, I just grew to appreciate how well done the original films were, and now I consider them absolute masterpieces. Let's get into the main cast. Bela Lugosi, of course, plays Count Dracula, and Lugosi began as a stage actor in his homeland of Hungary and started in films there in 1917. But later, he left Hungary for political reasons and relocated to Germany, where he consistently appeared in films until moving to the United States in the early 1920s. His big break was playing Count Dracula actually on Broadway in 1927, and this, of course, led to the role that made him a star on screen. Dwight Fry plays Renfield, and while Lugosi is definitely the star of this film, the other person that makes this film incredibly awesome is Dwight Fry. When he becomes one of Dracula's servants, his mannerisms are second to none. You know, obviously, Alice Cooper felt the same way and famously dedicated a song to the actor, The Ballad of Dwight Fry. Fry would continue to act in classic horror films throughout his career, but sadly died at the age of 44 in 1943 of a heart attack. Edward Van Sloan plays Van Helsing, and Van Sloan started his film career at a very older age of 49, as Dracula was only the second film of his career. He would be best known for playing Van Helsing, though he did have roles in classic monster movies like Frankenstein and The Mummy. And lastly, we have Todd Browning, who was the director, and Browning started directing short films in 1915 during the silent era and continued to make films consistently through the 1920s. However, Dracula was definitely his biggest and best-known film at the time. The next year, he would direct another cult classic, though not nearly well as known, and that's called Freaks, which I highly recommend you check that out. All right, let's get into the making of the film. So Carl Lemley Jr., whose father was the founder of Universal Studios, had always wanted to adapt a version of Bram Stoker's Dracula into a feature film. His niece Carla actually had the first line in the film during the stagecoach scene. So Dracula, of course, is one of the most iconic characters in, in the history of fiction. Even people who have never read the original book or even seen a film know of Dracula. So they actually filmed two versions of, of the film, the Todd Browning version and a Spanish-language version. The original novel, of course, came out in 1897, which was written by Bram Stoker, and he used some of the real-life story of Vlad the Impaler, whose real name was actually Vlad Dracula. But Stoker had already out, had his story outlined before using Vlad as sort of an inspiration. Stoker's vision of Dracula was not of a suave lady killer, but as a decrepit old man, much like Nosferatu. He would become younger from drinking blood, but never really became attractive like the character did in the film. Sir Henry Irving was Stoker's original choice to play Dracula on stage or on film. Supposedly Irving was vampire-esque in real life, feed, feeding off the negative energy of people. The first Dracula movie was a Hungarian film in 1916 called Dracula's Death. Ironically, Bela Lugosi was also Hungarian. However, the film's tone was closer to the Phantom of the Opera than what we would come to know as Dracula. In 1917, Nosferatu was released, which might have been the creepiest and scariest Dracula ever. It's very close to the original novel. In 1924, Dracula went to London as a play and later to Broadway. Hamilton Dean essentially created the Dracula character as we know him today. Lugosi actually ended up landing the role on Broadway, and he learned how to speak English often phonetically along with his lines in the play. 
but he had this sort of old-world charm and sex appeal to women at the time. Plus, his accent worked to his advantage playing the Count. Lon Chaney Sr. was actually Carl Lemley Jr.'s first choice to play Dracula, as he had already was the master of horror at Universal with the success of The Hunchback of Notre Dame and The Phantom of the Opera. Personally, I think that adaptation, if they had used Lon Chaney Sr., would not have been as good as using Lugosi, since Cheney was kind of best known for his makeup skills and because he was the, you know, the man of the thousand faces, but not necessarily, you know, the acting and the facial expressions. I mean, obviously he was a great actor because he was one of the biggest stars at the time, but just Lugosi had it. You think of Dracula, you think of Lugosi. But again, through all of this, Lugosi had to fight for the role on film. It was never, ever the first choice. However, Dwight Fry and Edward Van Sloan both reprised their stage roles of Renfield and Van Helsing, and they were the first choices for their characters. Todd Browning was somewhat uncomfortable in the new era of silent films as he made his mark in the silent era. And actually, the silence of Dracula is sometimes what makes this movie so powerful. It also adds to the creepiness. Originally, the film was supposed to be a big-budget production, which really implemented a lot of Stoker's original novel. However, due to the stock market crash of 1929 and then the Great Depression thereafter, the studio had to cut back on certain budgets, Dracula being one of them. This may have been a blessing in the long run because a brisk 75 minutes was perfect, and I'm not sure a 100 or 120 minute film would have been as awesome. You can see the original Phantom of the Opera with Juan Chaney Sr. to really see how uh, it could drag a little bit if you kept it extended. Since this was the early years of sound films, some movie theaters around the world didn't always have sound equipment set up. This meant the film was sometimes shown as a silent picture, with dialogue placards included in place of sound. Also, because dubbing wasn't used yet, international markets had to find their own way of releasing these sound films. One way was to use the silent method and show the dialogue in the native language through the cards. In the case of the Spanish-speaking market, that is why the Spanish version was filmed using Spanish-speaking actors. So the English version was shot during the day, while the Spanish version was shot at night. The exact same sets were used. The promotion posters were just awesome and definitely helped the success of the film. People were just enamored and intrigued by the look of Dracula. Also, kids at the time loved Dracula and would impersonate him often, sort of like a superhero. Regarding Bela Gossi's dialogue in the film, the exaggerated line readings were perfect, even if it was by necessity due to, the, due to English not being his first and main language. He acted every scene like it was the most important scene, and it shows. Wagosi was the first choice to play the Frankenstein monster, ironically, and often said he made Karloff famous because he turned down the role. However, in reality, Wagosi was never really rejected for the role, but for his own ego, he always said he turned it down. He would eventually play the Frankenstein monster in later films. Alright, let's just get right into the movie. One thing you will notice from the movie is there is very little dialogue. It feels very much like a silent film in many ways, but Bela Lugosi's body language and eyes pretty much give all the dialogue you need, frankly. So the intro placard logo looks exactly like what would become the Batman logo. And so I really wonder if Bob Kane, who invented Batman, used this logo as his inspiration. You have a very limited cast, and it feels like a play in many ways, which would make sense since it was, it was actually adapted from the 1924 play. The movie starts with one of the best characters in the film, and that's Renfield, of course, by Dwight Fry. Renfield is a traveling salesman who goes to Transylvania to visit Count Dracula's castle for a land deal. 
When the townspeople learn where Renfield is growing, they freak out because they know the rumors of what goes on in Dracula's castle. Renfield, of course, thinks the rumors are silly and decides to ignore the townspeople's warnings, like a typical horror film. <laughs> Though he's given a crucifix necklace as protection. I say, Porter, don't take my luggage down. I'm going on to Borgo Pass tonight. Borgo Tours, Moeste? Borgo Tours, Moeste. Big Mamma, Borgo Tours, Bokarmen. It's in fear. No, no, please, put that back up there. The driver, he is afraid. Walpurgis night. <laughs> Good fellow he is. He wants me to ask if you can wait and go on after sunrise. Well, I'm sorry, but there's a carriage meeting me at Borgo Pass at midnight. Borgo Pass? Yes. Whose carriage? Count Dracula's. Count Dracula's? Yes. Castle Dracula? Yes, that's where I'm going. To the castle? Yes. No. You mustn't go there. We people of the mountains believe that the castle there are vampires. Dracula and his wives, they take the form of wolves and bats. They leave their coffins at night and they feed on the blood of the living. But that's all superstition. Why, I... I can't understand why... Look, the sun. When it is gone, they leave their coffins. We must go indoors. But wait. I mean, just a minute. So you get to see the cellar of Dracula's castle, and the camera zooms in on his coffin. One thing I like about the very early Universal horror films is the lack of score. You basically only hear the hiss of the tape, and to me, this makes everything sort of more creepy. You see Lugosi's thin, bony hand creep out of the coffin as a rat creeps away. Immediately, you realize why Lugosi will always be the best Dracula in film. His eyes are like nobody else, and his look is the prototypical version of Dracula. All others that followed him are basically using his blueprint. In addition to his mannerisms, his gliding walk makes it look like he's walking on air. We also see his women awake when he does. So the lack of score also lets subtle noises like a wolf howling in the distance stand out even more. Dracula drives a coach to pick up Renfield, but he is somewhat disguised, though you can see his face. When you first see this, you probably don't even realize it's Lugosi. However, if you've seen him many times, you immediately pick this up. And he doesn't say a word to Renfield. And one really cool thing that the cinematographer did was to light Lugosi's eyes more prominently to accentuate his stare. Also, the fog effects while driving the coach looks pretty cool. There's a funny scene where Renfield is getting annoyed by the bumpy coach ride and goes to complain, and he notices that a bat is basically leading the coach while the horses follow. When Renfield arrives to the castle and gets to meet Dracula, this is one of the most memorable scenes in the film. I also love all the creepy things that appear in the castle, like the bats and the armadillos, the rats and the mice, the exquisite cobwebs, everything. But really, it's the children of the night dialogue that I've always loved. I am Dracula. 
It's really good to see you. I don't know what happened to the driver and my luggage and... Well, and with all this, I, I thought I was in the wrong place. I bid you welcome. Listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. The spider spinning his web for the unwary fly. The blood is the light, Mr. Renfield. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. We discover the nature of the land deal that Dracula needs, uh, Renfield 4, and during the discussion, Renfield cuts his finger accidentally on a paperclip from the paperwork. But before Dracula can pounce, the crucifix that Renfield was given dangles around his neck. Boxes. Very well. I have chartered a ship take us to England. We will be leaving tomorrow evening. Everything will be ready. I hope you will find this comfortable. Thanks. It looks very inviting. Ouch! Oh, it's nothing serious, just a small cut from that paper clip. It's just a scratch. This is very old wine. I hope you will like it. Aren't you drinking? I never drink. Why? Well, it's delicious. And now I'll leave you. Well, good night. Good night, Mr. Renfield. So Renfield passes out from the tainted wine that Dracula gives him, and Dracula's women decide they want to pounce on Renfield, but Dracula shoes them away. It is only assumed that Dracula bites Renfield as he kneels down before the scene devolves. Today, you would see the bite up close and blood gushing out, I'm sure. Next, we see a ship at sea that is traveling to London as Renfield is now under the spell of Dracula, and he's kind of turning maniacal in many ways. He is essentially Dracula's servant and wakes Dracula when the sun is down. We are here. You can't hear what I'm saying, but we are here. We are safe. They must have come through a terrible storm. <laughs> What's that? Why? Come from that hatchway.
Why, he's mad. Look at his eyes. Why, the man's gone crazy. Renfield's laugh is so awesome. Nothing like it ever before, and really nothing like it after. Once in London, Dracula immediately attacks a young woman selling flowers. He's so brazen, he basically does it in the middle of the street without a care in the world. Dracula loves women, and his life basically revolves, <laughs> well, you can use life in quotes, basically revolves around finding his next female victim. His next prize is Dr. Seward's daughter, Mina, who is played by Helen Chandler, whom he meets while attending the theater in London. And after you deliver the message, you will remember nothing, I now say. Obey. Dr. Seward. Yes? You're wanted on the telephone. Oh, thank you. Well, excuse me, Oh, yes? Father, hmm? if it's from home, will you say I'm spending the night in town with Lucy? <laughs> All right, dear. <laughs> Pardon? Yes? I could not help overhearing your name. Might I inquire if you are the Dr. Seward to sanitarium is at Whitby? Why, uh, yes. I'm Count Dracula. I have just leased Carfax Abbey. I understand it adjoins your grounds. Why, yes, it does. I'm very happy to make your acquaintance. Uh, may I present um, my daughter, Mina? Count Dracula? Uh, Miss Weston. How do you do? And uh, Mr. Harker. How do you do? Count Dracula's just taken Carfax Abbey. Oh, it'll be a relief to see lights in those dismal old windows. It will indeed. Uh, you'll excuse me, I'm wanted on the telephone. The Abbey could be very attractive. But I should imagine it would need quite extensive repairs. I shall do very little repairing. It reminds me of the broken battlements of my own castle in Transylvania. The Abbey always reminds me of that old toast about lofty timbers, the walls around our bare, echoing to our laughter as though the dead were there. <laughs> nice little sentiment. <laughs> but there's more, even nicer. Pop a cup to the dead already. Hurrah for the next to die. Oh, never mind the rest, dear. <laughs> <laughs> to die. To be really dead. That must be glorious. Why, well, Count Dracula. There are far worse things, waiting man, than death. There's a great line that Lugosi says that there's far worse things than death. Lucy is enamored with Count Dracula, so when she happens to leave her window open in her bedroom that night, guess who happens to fly in as a bat? <laughs> this is a very cool scene because we get to see the ultimate Dracula way of sauntering up to his victim very slowly with his hand contorted in the way that only Dracula can do before he bites it, you know, her neck. Again, you never see the bite as the scene devolves. It's almost refreshing to see things implied rather than spelled out. It's up to the viewer to imagine how things will go. Next, we get to see Renfield in the local sanitarium as he's treated with the other loonies. Your hand's covered. I don't want to keep my hands 
We're finally introduced to Van Helsing, who realizes that the murders occurring from a dramatic loss of blood must be from the undead, like a vampire. And then Van Helsing gets to meet Renfield. Did you hear what we were saying? Yes, I heard something. Enough. Be guided by what he says. It's your only hope. It's her only hope. I begged you to send me away, but you wouldn't. Now it's too late. It's happened again. What's happened? Take her away from here. Take her away before. No, no, Master. I wasn't going to say anything. I told him nothing. I'm loyal to you, Master. What have you to do with Dracula? Dracula? I never even heard the name before. Window in the moonlight. And he promised me things. Not in words, but by doing them. Doing them? By making them happen. A red mist spread over the lawn, coming on like a flame of fire. And then he parted it. And I could see that there were thousands of rats with their eyes blazing red. Like his, only smaller. And then he held up his hand, and they all stopped. And I thought he seemed to be saying, Rats, 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 thousands, millions of them, all red blood, all will I give you if you will obey. What did he want you to do? That which has already been done. <laughs> As you will hear for some of the quips, some versions actually include the score. I actually prefer non-score. 
But I think it adds, again, to the creepiness and the tension. Martin as a sanitarium caretaker is just great. He's got this thick Cockney accent. It's also the introduction of Wolfbane, which is used to protect humans from vampires. I always thought it was cool that Blaze Bailey's original band that he was in adopted this name. Of course, many people knows Bla- know Blaze Bailey as the third lead singer after Bruce Dickinson in the band Iron Maiden. Draco's next victim is Mina, his man intent all along. She acts somewhat normal, but you can tell something's off, and she's covering her neck with a scarf. Van Helsing knows something is up. What could have caused him, Professor? Count Dracula. It's good to see you back again, Doctor. I heard you have just arrived. You, Miss Mina, you're looking exceptionally... Pardon me, Doctor Sewer. But I think Miss Mina should go to her room at once. Professor Van Helsing, I don't believe it's as important as you seem to think it is. Uh, excuse me, Count Dracula, Professor Van Helsing. Van Helsing, a most distinguished scientist whose name we know, even in the wild Transylvania. I had a frightful dream a few nights ago, and I don't seem to be able to get it out of my mind. I hope you haven't taken my stories too seriously. Stories? Yes. In my humble effort to amuse your fiancée, Mr. Harker, I was telling her some rather grim tales of my far-off country. I can imagine. Why, John? I can quite understand Mr. Harker's concern. I'm afraid it's quite serious. My dear, I'm sure Count Dracula will excuse you. You must go to your room, as Professor Van Helsing suggests. Oh, but really, Father, I'm feeling quite well. You had better do as your father advises. Very well. Good night, John. Miss Mina. May I call later and inquire how you are feeling? Why, yes. Thank you. I'm sorry, Doctor. My visit was so ill-timed. Not at all. On the contrary. There's a great movie trick where John, Mina's fiancé, asks who could have done something like that to Mina. Before anyone can answer, the maid introduces Count Dracula. It's great timing. The reason the original Dracula is so well done is you get the basics of detecting a vampire, whether it be the lack of a reflection in a mirror, or the fear of a cross, the use of wolfbane and garlic, the shape shifting into bats and wolves, you know, sleeping during the day in his natural soil, it's all there. Now, it's, now, this might seem primitive because we have the hindsight of many years of the Dracula tale, but the foundation was set with this film. The cat and mouse game between Van Helsing and Dracula is excellent, and both actors play their role perfectly. For one who has not lived even a single lifetime, you are a wise man, Van Helsing. The great part about this version of Dracula is not a minute is wasted, no scene is unimportant, and the movie feels longer than it really is because there's so much packed in. And this is a good thing. It's sort of like the original Disney animated features. You can tell a perfect story concisely without having a movie be over two hours. That art is totally lost on today's filmmakers. One thing that is sort of mysterious is why Mina doesn't immediately fall under Dracula's spell. Other victims immediately became undead and possessed by him. I 
guess this is only for the drama of the film, but it never really made sense to me. Then you get the ultimate showdown between Van Helsing and Dracula. Van Helsing. Now that you have learned what you have learned, it would be well for you to return to your own country. I prefer to remain and protect those whom you would destroy. You are too late. My blood now flows through her veins. She will live through the centuries to come, as I have lived. Should you escape us, Dracula, we know how to save Miss Mina's soul, if not her life. If she dies by day, but I shall see that she dies by night. And I will have Carfax Abbey torn down stone by stone, excavated a mile around. I will find your earth box and drive that stake through your heart. Come here. Come here. Your will is strong and Helsing. More Wolfbane, more effective than Wolfbane, Count. Indeed. The last scene isn't done justice by simply listening. Lugosi's hand and fingers try to pull Van Helsing into his trance, and that's just fabulous. Lugosi was absolutely the best, and I love his ways of saying, Wolfbane? You can sort of guess the ending by now, since the tale has been told a thousand times. In any case, if you haven't seen the original, again, it's a must-watch. You won't be disappointed. One interesting thing about this film is that it's carried, really, by three main characters, Dracula, Renfield, and Van Helsing. The side plot involving Mina is necessary to keep the story going, but you almost forget about them. Martin actually is the exception to the rule, as he is the best side character. What is it? Who is it, Martin? It's that big gray bat again, sir. No use of wasting your bullets, Martin. They cannot harm that bat. No, sir. He's crazy. They're all crazy. They're all crazy except you and me. Sometimes I have me doubts about you. Yes. The staircase in Draco's castle is so cool looking. It looks like anyone could fall over the side at any moment. I'm your slave. I didn't betray you. Oh no, don't. Don't kill me. Let me live, please. Punish me, torture me, but let me live. I can't die with all those lives on my conscience. All that blood on my head. And 
And I do like how the ending isn't really drawn out, and it's almost an afterthought. There's not even music during the closing placard. It's sort of refreshing. All right, let's get into some quick fun facts. The film was a huge success and was really the first film to start the Universal Monster series. Dracula's Castle was a painting on glass in front of a camera. The coach traveling along the road was real, but the background was not. Cinematographer Carl Freund achieved the effect of Dracula's hypnotic stare by aiming two pencil spotlights into Bela Lugosi's eyes. Betty Davis, who had a contract at Universal at the time, was considered to play the part of Mina Harker. However, Universal head Carl Emley Jr. didn't think too highly of her sex appeal. Now this is interesting, the studio did not want Dracula's attack of Renfield to be filmed due to the perceived gay subtext of the situation. So a memo was sent to the director stating that Dracula is only to attack women on camera. Very interesting. All right, we have two very special guests, and this is great. So we have a first-time guest, Joseph Staub, who is a huge Universal Monster Horror movie fan, and so it's great to get him on the first time and, and introduce him to the Damn Good Movie Memories audience. He's been on other podcasts before, and he is he does a fabulous job. And then we get one of our old favorites who hasn't been on in a while, but I had to pick the right movie for him, and of course, he again, he too is a huge monster movie fan, if you know from our past episodes, and that is Malin. So two great guess and that's coming up right now and i will be back next week with another film so this is a long time coming and i'm always excited to have first time guests and today we have none other than joseph staub he's on today to discuss the 1931 classic dracula and so joseph and i were introduced through our love of hard rock and, and heavy metal through the wonderful rock and metal combat podcast and of course the online community that they have and Joseph is just a huge movie buff, which is why it's only natural that he be a guest on Damn Good Movie Memories. And so it's also really cool and sort of ironic that our younger guests like Joseph and, and one of our regular Samantha are so much into classic films because they're younger. And, and when I say classic films nowadays, some folks think like the 1990s or the 80s. And that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, classic Hollywood from like the golden age of the 1930s and 40s. So it's great to have you on, Joseph. Thanks very much for having me, Brian. No problem. And so today we're just going to we're going to go all in talking about arguably one of the best films in that Universal Monster, um, you know, group of films. It's almost kind of the uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe of today. Well, back then they had the monster universe of the 30s, 40s and 50s and Dracula from 1931. What was the first Universal Monster movie that you were introduced to? And then when eventually did you see Dracula? I would say that the first one I was introduced to would have been the first Frankenstein film mm -hmm. uh, from a very young age. I remember seeing that on television and really taking an interest in the universal horror movies. I'm sure I saw Dracula not too long after that. I've, I saw most of the original Dracula, Frankenstein, the Wolfman, the Mummy pretty early, and then went on to watch some of the sequels when I ended up getting the uh, uh, Essential Collection box set with all 30 of the films in it. So I would say that Dracula was pretty early in my travel through the Universal Horror Collection. And so of all the Draculas, uh, all the different actors that portrayed them, of course, only Bela Lugosi played Dracula twice, and there were others, uh, whether it be Lon Chaney, Lon Chaney Jr., or uh, John Carradine. Who would be your favorite Dracula? In the, in the scope of the Universal, I would definitely say Bela Lugosi. Mm -hmm. he's, up, he's definitely up there with Christopher Lee as one of my favorite Draculas overall, mm -hmm. but definitely Bela Lugosi if we're just talking about the Universal series. 
Yeah, and we should eventually, once we once we kind of go through uh, Dracula, we should talk about Hammer a little bit because um, I think that would be kind of interesting if you're interested in that in yeah, that so section. Yeah. Cool. Uh, well, okay, let's just go right into Dracula. So when you first saw it, were how old were you? And since you are younger, and I'm sure you saw other horror movies, did this creep you out as much as a modern day horror film, or was it something you're like, oh, it's fun, but it's it's kind of campy in a sort of way? I probably saw this around age nine or ten and this was probably before i was really into a lot of horror movies like a lot of the slashers that would come in the 70s and 80s i probably saw those later so this was pretty early in my horror career so i think it if i remember correctly it did creep me out quite a bit especially the scenes at the beginning of the movie with dracula and renfield in the castle Mm -hmm. especially and then scenes uh especially like pretty much any of renfield's scenes are were very striking to me at a young age and i mean nowadays you look at it and it is a little less scary than each of you but there are still some very creepy moments when you watch it now oh absolutely and i'm really glad you brought up renfield he is kind of he's not the star but without him i don't think the movie's as powerful because dwight fry is just that laugh and and uh how he's just he's super super creepy and the expressions on his face it's 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 brilliant it really is he's every bit as good as bella lugosi is oh definitely i mean the the amount that he contributed to all those early universal pictures whether it be dracula or frankenstein or any of them mm-hmm. with all the ones that he was in he definitely contributed a lot absolutely and another interesting thing that a lot of early films had they always had score well something about dracula there was no score and if anything that actually leads to the creepiness factor yeah, especially the only score you really hear is the Swan Lake theme at the beginning and at some certain scenes, but in general there is no music unless you listen to the uh, Philip Glass score, which in all honesty I really recommend you don't, but right. um, it, it, is, it does t- tend to add to the creepiness, especially, like I had mentioned, in, especially in the early scenes of Dracula at the castle where he's just going on these sort of soliloquies and there's nothing behind him, it's just his voice. Right. And that's perfect. So like when in the beginning, one of the most famous uh, little like scenes he has is when he's talking about uh, the children of the night, which, of course, is the the wolves and everything. You can hear that in the background. If there was score, I don't think it would be kind of drowned out in a way. Yeah, I agree. You can hear the sort of creature noise. You can hear the bats. You can hear the wolves. You can hear the sort of all the little noises that you wouldn't be able to hear if there was a, a score. And I definitely understand why they didn't want to do a score, especially since it's coming so close on the heels of the silent pictures where that was all you heard. Right. So it was definitely, I, I think it was a specific move away from that sort of atmosphere of film, which, mm-hmm. I mean, you would see it slowly being added back. Like, once you, got, once you get to, like, Bride of Frankenstein, you're already back in. There's a full score for that. Even, like, the first Frankenstein film, there's not much of a score for that's true, and that's a great point. I mean, silent films, you got to remember, this is 1931, and so it really is the early days of talkies, and uh, there is dialogue in this, but it's a lot of, you know, watching what Dracula is doing and kind of facial reactions, which I think sometimes people now find campy, but you kind of had to overact back then because people were used to Broadway. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you... To, to watch this as compared to some of the later Universal or even, like, the Hammer Horror series, mm-hmm. this movie can kind of come off as very slow in comparison because of that sort of move away from the silent films where there is not a lot of dialogue. There's It relies a lot on the expressions and the movement of the actors. And I think that... 
I think it does sort of turn some people off from the film, but I think it has a lot of power in that it is very reliant on those motions and those expressions. Absolutely. And I, I take it you've seen the Nosferatu as well. Yes. Yeah, and it's the same. Yeah, and that's the same thing with that. I mean, I think he is Max Schreck was definitely the creepiest looking version of Dracula. But when you think of Dracula, you got to think Bela Lugosi. Yeah, it's it's amazing how much legacy this film has for a film that, in all in in my opinion, this actually would probably rank lower on my list of all the Universal horror movies. Movies, I think it's a good film, mm-hmm. but I think in comparison to a lot of the other films like the Frankenstein films or. Well, the first Mummy film I have some problems with, but The Invisible Man especially, or The Wolf Man, mm-hmm. I think this ranks a, lo- a lot lower than some of those films. Oh, I get that. And and The Mummy, I think the only problem with... Well, there's lots of problems with The Mummy, but <laughs> every, single <laughs> se- every single sequel is basically the same. So. It, yeah, especially those sequels. I mean, all of the, the, the first... They all sort of blend together in my mind. I, I go back and watch through The Mummy sequels, I'm like, which one am I watching again? Yeah. <laughs> And he does the same thing. He saunters. He's so slow and magical. Oh he still God. catches everyone. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's funny how you look at the first mummy film. And the mummy is such a central character. I mean, he's not even a mummy for most of the film. He's just Boris Karloff for most of the film. Right. But then you look at all the sequels, and the mummy's just sort of like this bandaged dude who just runs around when everyone else is telling him to. He's sort of just like the secondary villain of all these films. You always have the character that's sort of controlling him is usually played by the same actor. So right. that doesn't that doesn't help contribute to uh trying to remember which film is which one, but um it <laughs> the later mummy sequels definitely aren't high on my list either. No, no, it's it, a lot of the I mean that box set that you mentioned is a must own. Uh oh, they're definitely. fun to watch, but yeah, I think when you return to the movies you almost return to uh the the originals or at least with Frankenstein the first three films. Yeah. And I mean and then you look at something like the Abbott and Costello movies that oh, yeah. all of them, and even they make fun of how repetitive the Mummy sequels are because that the Abbott and Costello meet the Mummy is basically a remake of the first Mummy sequel. And yeah. They sort of, they even make jokes about it. Oh, totally. And it's funny to think that even back then they realized how repetitive all those films were. Yeah, and I think you know way back when there's no way they could have thought of one television wasn't even thought about and and if you were going to rewatch a movie you had to go back to the theater they may re-release it there was no way they could even thought about home video at at some point so i don't think they really cared if they were being repetitive because people kind of ate it up and if you hadn't seen a money mummy movie in 10 years it's not that big of a deal yeah that's always fun to think about when you when you look back in an era like that and then you can just sit there and just point out especially with sequels and stuff with all of the different continuity errors and oh yeah like and then you think about, well, well, no one was actually thinking about that back then. There was no, like, now there's a continuity uh, advisor on almost every film you look at. Back then, there wasn't anything like that because, frankly, they didn't care. But, no, exactly. Exactly. Like, it, it, it would never happen today. People wouldn't stand for it. Yeah, back, back then, you didn't have people like us sitting talking on the Internet about all these films and, and watch, being able to watch them one after another which is also why a lot of these films weren't preserved that well because they thought (laughs) yeah they were just kind of i mean thank god they eventually the ucla kind of you know preserved some of these uh early classics but a lot of them are just gone forever it's amazing to think about all of the lost films even like a lot of uh lon chaney seniors films Mm -hmm. that you can't watch anymore like some of the ones that like people think he's even most recognizable in don't exist anymore right it's kind of sad to think about 
Oh, it is. It absolutely is. But they had absolutely no way of considering it back then of that. Well, one more thing to talk about, which is kind of a character on its own, is Dracula's castle. And I think that, I mean, that really adds to the creepiness factor. You know, when they kind of go where, uh, I guess you could call it a basement where everyone's kind of sleeping when, um, you know, during during the, the early morning hours. And eventually where Dracula finds his demise. What did you think about that and how they did that? I think that in both the, uh, we also have to talk about the Spanish version of this film. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In both the English and the Spanish film, I think those scenes, especially in the, in the basement with all the uh, female vampires rising up out of their coffins, they are very well directed and very well executed and blocked because it does add to the creepiness of the early scenes and the later scenes of the film Mm -hmm. with just sort of like this set that's just barren and you just see these coffins lying around and it really does kind of you it's not something you see every day it's something that really sort of heightens the creepiness of the scenes that and you see like an armadillo which was kind of <laughs> random and yeah. you see obviously the the mice and the vermin and everything like that but it just added to the creepiness of everything and it's dusty and and just yeah it's it's great yeah and especially a lot of the set pieces in this film didn't work as well but like when you look at dracula's castle and you work you look at most of the scenes that take place in it i think those are some of the best executed scenes in the film oh absolutely and the stair that stairwell is amazing yeah uh let's we, we kind of briefly talked about it but let's talk about hammer a little bit how does hammer compare for you and um yeah how do you feel about the whole hammer series I really enjoy a lot of the Hammer films, especially the Dracula series. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first Hammer Dracula film, either Dracula or Horror, Dracula, depending on what title it goes by. Um, I think that is probably one of the best vampire films ever made. I think that portrayal of especially Chris, uh, Christopher Lee as Dracula and Peter Cushing as Van Helsing mm-hmm. is one of the most recognizable pairings in horror history. And I think the, film, uh, the cinematography of that film is extremely impressive, and you compare that to Universal Dracula. I think they're both they're very different films, and I think they both have their own merits as films. But if you give me the choice to watch either one, I would probably go with the Hammer Horror Dracula instead. Mm-hmm. I think that my only knock on Hammer is they can get a little long, or they feel a little long. Uh, they're very talky for lack of a better word. And um, sometimes you're just waiting to get to that. You know, I want to see some action where I don't think you really ever felt that in Universal. They were kind of really good, almost Disney-like in a way with making sure that films kind of had a nice pace to them. I, I would agree. I think, especially if you look at some of the lengths of these old Universal films, I mean, some of them barely broke 65, 70 minutes. Exactly, yeah. Um, and then you look at the Hammer Horror, you can definitely tell it's more of that English style of filmmaking with the mm-hmm. very very dialogue-heavy sort of explain instead of show. And I think, I mean, for some people that is appealing. And I I do enjoy some of the more dialogue-heavy films, but I definitely see where you're coming from with just sort of waiting for the next big action set piece and the tendency of those films to be a little bit longer. And, yeah, I can see that. But uh, to your point, I think Hammer probably are better made films because they have the the luxury of of, you know, time and 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 
seeing what was the original groundwork and kind of improving on that. They were also in color, which also makes it a little bit you know, scarier in a way you could see actual red blood and things like that. And of course, anything like you said with Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing is going to be pretty cool. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think the the uh, color versus black and white is definitely a factor. I think uh, the way that they use color and the color palette that is used in the Hammer Horror films, it's a very warm palette. I think it's a very well-chosen color palette for those films. I think it really contributes a lot. I mean, black and white is infamous for being able to hide a lot of things. Sure. Especially when the budget was not exactly the best, and you can see that in a lot of the later Universal films when the budget was kind of running thin and the studio really wasn't that mm-hmm. into the films anymore. But I think that black and white is very effective in the Universal Dracula as color is effective in the Hammer Horror films. I mean, uh, other things that you you never see uh, fangs in the Universal Dracula, you never see anyone actually getting bit on the neck. True. You never see a lot of the tropes that we come to associate with vampire films, even though Bela Lugosi is probably the most recognizable Dracula of all time. Oh, yeah, and the use of how they would zoom in on his eyes, they would have the shadows, the use of light. Uh, but, yeah, you bring up a great point about the fangs and, and, and biting. Everything was implied back then, which is kind of uh, endearing in a way. Uh, but then for some people who are used to the, the, you know, the gore and the horror, it's probably a little bit, oh, come on, you know, I want to see something. Yeah, that, especially the first Dracula film, there was a lot of implication. As you, oh, yeah. As they went on, I mean, Frankenstein, they, a lot was shown. I mean, they had to cut stuff because of the Hayes Code. But yep. um, the first Dracula film, I mean, you never truly see Dracula transform. You, It's implied. You see shadows. Mm-hmm. You hear noises. But it's never explicitly shown as it would be later in the series in something like Son of Dracula or the Abbott and Costello film. Um. I, I don't think they really had the technology to master, like, the dissolves that would be required for that, like something you would see in The Wolfman. And I think that I kind of... I like that they're able to really sort of make you know what's going on, but without exactly showing you. I think it takes a lot of ingenuity to be able to tell that story without being able to show everything. Mm-hmm. I also liked, you know, even though it did look a little campy, the special effects weren't that bad considering they were the early 1930s. Yeah, uh, whether, yeah whether it be the bat or, or things like that. A lot of the special effects that would be used in the Universal films especially sometimes weren't that great. I mean, you look at uh, the Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein and you look at when Dracula transforms from a bat back to a person and it's literally animated yeah exactly and it's, it's the guy who drew woody woodpecker right and dracula transforming from a bat back to a human and it's kind of a little bit cheesy but i think all in all the effects that were used in the original dracula film stand up pretty well in comparison to some of the other effects that were used in the series oh i agree and i i'm glad you brought up Avin costello meet, meet frankenstein because i actually do like that animation for some reason <laughs> it's you know because they at least had to go and it wasn't green screened or something like yeah. that where today it's just a click of a button uh but then they actually had to physically draw it and everything so yeah that's i i don't know i kind of you know maybe that's just me but it's kind of endearing how did when did you see Avin and costello meet frankenstein because for me that was the, my introduction to universal horror that was that was one of the early ones that probably would have been pretty soon after I saw the original. I don't know if I ever I'm trying to remember the exact timeline here. I think it might have been one of the first ones I saw in mm-hmm. full. I know I saw clips and 
sort of images of Dracula and Frankenstein first. But I don't, I can't remember exactly the order. Which I, it might, it might very well have been the first one that I saw in full. So that definitely contributed to uh, my love for the Universal horror and also my love for Abbott and Costello. They're probably my favorite comedians of all time. Mm. Yeah, that was a, it's such a great gateway drug, I think, for kids uh, to get into monster movies, because not only is it fun, but it is scary in a way, but not so scary that you're going to be turned off from them either. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, this is uh, do you have any other like great, you know, like points about uh, Dracula 1931 and, and things that you want to touch upon? I mean, maybe we can talk about the uh, Spanish version for. Oh, yes. Let's do that. I think. That overall, I actually enjoy the Spanish version a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tone-wise, I mean, there's actually a score in the Spanish version, and I think it's a beautiful score. I think some of the performances are a little bit campy, especially the uh, person playing Dracula. I definitely prefer Bela Lugosi. Mm-hmm. But I think overall, with the exception of like Renfield and Dracula, I really prefer the characterization in the Spanish version more. And I think the cinematography is a little bit better in the Spanish version. I think the sets... Even though they used the same sets, I think the way they filmed them presented them in a little bit more of a uh, appealing way. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I generally enjoy the Spanish version a little bit more. I would think that's interesting, and it, you're you're totally right. They filmed them on the same lot, same sets at the same time, uh, wanting to hit the Spanish market uh, for this film, and it's uh, really interesting because they really, I mean, they don't do this anymore. They would just simply translate it. So obviously. Uh, Universal thought there would be enough cachet in Dracula to to hit an international market. Yeah, and I think they were doing that for a couple different of their films at the time, where they would film the English version during the daytime, and then at night they would bring in a completely different cast, a completely different crew, and record it in Spanish. Mm-hmm. And that was the only one of the horror series that they did that for, but I think a lot of their early talking pictures, they did that with um, where they brought in a different cast and recorded it in Spanish. Right. And did they, I don't know um, if they did or not, did they do that with any of the other monster movies? I don't believe so. I think it was just Dracula. I, I've, I've never seen any of the other ones, and I know they'd probably be on the DVD if they were, so I, I don't think that any of the other ones were recorded in another language, which I think is weird considering that Frankenstein and uh, Invisible Man were both made in the same year. Right. I think, like what I said, I definitely enjoy the first Dracula film. I think it's it's, it stands up pretty well, I think, especially the performances of uh, Bela Lugosi and uh, Dwight Fry especially stand up today as some of the better performances in the entirety of the Universal Monsters franchise. And overall, I still think it's a pretty good movie. So if you were to recommend uh, a movie to start with, you would recommend Frankenstein? Most likely I would recommend Frankenstein. Uh, to, well, it depends. I would recommend, like you said, I think Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein is a great gateway for younger uh, viewers. Mm-hmm. I think if you're an older viewer and you're in more into horror and you just never, you've never really watched any of the Universal Monster films and you sort of want to dip your toe in, I think either Frankenstein or uh, maybe even The Invisible Man would be a very good film to start out with. Yeah, Claude Rains is amazing in that, and it's funny. Definitely. Yeah, it's, it's so good. And it's really different than any of the other monster movies, you know, in, in many ways. It is. It's much. It's much more of a psychological horror film. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Joseph. And we plan on having you on a lot more. And this is great. You're definitely going to be our go-to Universal monster guy. And there's at least thirty films, so yep. you're going to be on a lot. <laughs> yep. Thanks for having me.
Okay, it's been way, way, way too long. We have back one of our old favorites. And by old, I don't mean age. I mean one of our classic favorites from this podcast. It is Malin. Welcome back. Hey, Brian. Thanks for giving me a call back. Thanks for finally returning my call. (laughs) Well, you know what happened? I was big timing you, you know, like they do in Hollywood. So, you know, the podcast adapts and and things change. But no, we never forgot you. And I was just waiting for the moment to get you for the perfect movie. And and I think this is one of them. But as, before we get into the movie, I always want to ask, did you ever read the original Bram Stoker's novel? Oh, yeah, I did. Um, actually, I had just reread it within the last year. Um, so the funny thing about that, uh, I, I'm not a huge fan of the book. Um, I don't like epistolary novels where it's all just kind of letters and diary entries. Uh, I'm not a fan of that. Um, and even though Frankenstein does a little bit, um, I actually much prefer the book. I think it's much more um, complex and interesting. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, as I say, I just recently reread it. So did you see the movie first or did you read the, the novel first? Oh, I absolutely saw the movie first. I saw the movie. Uh, I probably couldn't read a book that was longer than 20 pages at that <laughs> age. I don't remember what age, but I was really young. Uh-huh. So what was the first Universal Monster movie you saw? That's hard. I I don't know if it was it was how oh, I don't remember exactly which one. I vaguely have a recollection of my parents trying to explain to me like the concept of some of these monsters. Mm. I remember um, when they were trying to explain to me what the mummy was. And in my child mind, I kept hearing mommy. Uh-huh. And when the movie started, I was totally not ready for what i was going to see because <laughs> i was expecting like something like a mommy and then there was like this horrible bandage wrapped uh karloff and not at all what i was expecting so i do vaguely remember them trying to explain these things to me and my brain kind of kicking back and being like i don't get it but then at the same time my imagination was more hyperactive then and was kind of taking it into you know out of control probably on some level as well that's uh, funny because you think of mommy, you would think of it's like an Abbott and Costello bit, you know, <laughs> that we do with the mummy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so I and I don't remember. I mean, I vaguely remember like seeing Dracula for the first time. But most of what I remember is that I was just I was really, really young. And I was uh, I think I was asking a lot of questions, trying to understand what was going on because it's for maybe I was four Mm, wow really young yeah no i was i was younger than i should have been to see that um it was definitely before kindergarten Um, wow so usually like so for me they tested the waters by showing me abbott and costello meet meet frankenstein because it was a you know it was funny it was less it was still scary in a way but not as scary as the originals yeah yeah it was the it was absolutely the opposite way for me i um i was introduced to the universal horror films first i didn't um encounter uh abbott and costello's take on the horror films until much later um mm-hmm. oh and, and when i did see the first universal horror films i do remember being terrified by them absolutely terrified by them but i was also really really scared uh by the first um by uh what was uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein or that I, I think that was the first it had all three of them and then eventually they did the mummy and the visible man and and everything else 
so that was the first Abbott and Costello um, takeoff that I had seen. And I remember really being scared by like the first few scenes with um, uh, in the warehouse with the coffin that keeps creeping. Yeah. I remember that freaked me out as a kid. I think I was like running in and out of the room, kind of like peeking around corners. <laughs> you know? well, th- well, that and, and then the transition of Lon Chaney Jr. into the Wolfman. And that was that was great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I remember loving. Uh, I was so fascinated by the guy who grew the hair. <laughs> <laughs> well, that and the special effects. I mean, it was a labor of love, literally. I mean, it took maybe 10, 12 hours to just put all of that stuff on onto them. I mean, all of that took so much time and, and uh, really, you know, delicate way of doing it. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think as a kid, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't understand at that age how film worked. And so it was still very, very magical um, to me. Of course, now I'm much more jaded. Um, but then, yeah, uh, I do remember my first impression as a kid being really amazed. Well, I think that's the awesome part about watching movies as a kid, good or bad, especially classic films, because you haven't yet seen it all. And so now if you've seen a bunch of movies, you know, in modern times and you go back and watch, I think it's tough to look through modern eyes but if you're completely young and, and you're you have virgin eyes it, i think it's maybe a better way of watching old films yeah i mean i sometimes wonder like if i had like been broken in on like friday the 13th and yeah. or on elm street you know as like a young adult before i saw you know the classic horror films i probably wouldn't have given them well i don't i don't know for sure but i i kind of fear that i might not have given them the time of day and maybe you know, just thought, oh, this isn't scary at all. This is ridiculous or childlike or, you know, but no, when I was, when I first saw them, they were fucking scary. (laughs) So so let's just get right into the movie. So again, how often do you rewatch this and does it still hold up as well uh, for you? And and was it something that when you first saw it, it was like, oh, I got to see all of them now, or I have to keep rewatching, you know, Dracula and and all the monsters. I don't know how often I rewatch them. Um, Probably once, every few years so it's not an annual thing that's for sure um i did watch a few of them uh much earlier this year dracula included Mm. do you think they hold up against my memories at least this most recent viewing of dracula did hold up against uh my memories because i i think i was expecting less for some reason and this my impressions of this last viewing um i was just so impressed by the sets yeah especially dracula's castle uh is so it's just gorgeous i really think it's beautiful um i don't know if the set design has been topped by any subsequent dracula i think those are my favorite sets as far as his castle goes the huge cavernous way with those steps where you yes Lugosi, it's just kind of overwhelming. Um, and I love how, by comparison, the crypt uh, down below is so yes. much more um, squalid and darker and more claustrophobic. And it's just amazing. And I, you can kind of tell um, how I, I, I don't know this for certain because I didn't do any research on who the set designer was. But I, I feel like it's still borrowing some of the aesthetics from like German expressionism and silent film. Um, and, and I love all of that as well. So if, if that's true, then maybe that's why I like it. Um, but if not, 
um, something about it I, th I just think is really, really romantic and really gothic and scary just on its own. The sets are fantabulous. Oh, yeah, uh, I absolutely agree. I mean, yeah. again, I, I talked to uh, another fan of this who's actually a younger l listener. And he and we both agreed about the sets. And this really plays like a silent film in many ways. There's no score unless you go, you know, listen or see the version with the Philip Glass score. But if you watch the original version, it's completely silent, which actually lends to the eerie of the film yeah absolutely absolutely i i think that the philip i like philip glass quite a bit mm -hmm. um but i i don't know if i could honestly say that it contributed a whole lot like on one hand mm -hmm. i would watch any movie with a philip glass score added to it mm -hmm. or designed for it but i don't know if dracula necessarily needed it yeah and and you hear the like the the sounds and like when he's talking about the children of the night with the wolves yeah. and everything i mean it's perfect it's absolutely perfect and i think the score uh might have even taken away from it if they had it well i wonder so i guess when it was originally uh presented in the theaters it wouldn't have had a live accompaniment would it it may have, but that was actually part of the problem. I don't believe many of the theaters were, all of them were equipped to have sound at that point, because this is 1931. And so uh, uh, talkie pictures are just starting to get into vogue. And, and I think it, my research showed that um, some of the theaters just weren't equipped for silent film, so I th or for, for talking film. So they would show, you know, um, like placards, like they'd have like, uh, instead of dialogue, they would have a different version just, you know, with the, the dialogue showing at times. Yeah. So that's, that's really interesting. That's kind of what I was wondering, um, is whether or not, uh, uh, by live accompaniment, when the theaters were transitioning from silent to talkies, mm -hmm. I imagine there would have been plenty of those, uh, theaters that weren't re yet ready for talkies that still had like Wurlitzers or organs where they could do like improv scores like they were doing for silent films. So um, that you mentioned that it was being presented with intertitles. Maybe maybe there were cases where it was presented with like a, a, a musical improv background on like an organ or a piano or something. Right. And they could have done that also for the international market because they did record a Spanish version uh, at the same time as this. They filmed all that. So maybe it's possible they did, you know, have a have a silent version for non, you know, English speaking markets. Uh, a fun mm -hmm. fact, my great grandmother on my, my dad's side actually uh, was one of the uh, music accompaniment players in theaters back when she was much younger. And uh, what's crazy is she couldn't read music. She did it all by ear. She just oh. would sit down and play. And and yeah, my my dad tells me these stories of of her just sitting down to a piano and just playing something. They'd ask her where she came from, and she had no idea. She could just play. So really <laughs> cool. Yeah, that is so interesting. Yeah, I I had went. I had gone once to a concert. It was um, the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Mm -hmm. uh, it was at the Walt Disney um, Concert Hall. And they had an organist doing a live, completely improv accompaniment um, as much as he could uh, in the nature of the way that they did it um, during the silent film era. Um, and he, so he, he talked us through it a little bit at, at first. He said that... Um, uh, they didn't necessarily have written scores for all films. And when they didn't, um, there were certain musical uh, tropes um, or maybe just musical chords that were used the most frequently that mm -hmm. they would 
rely on when they were improving. And so they, some of them, uh, some artists did have kind of a ready batch of musical knowledge um, to to dive into when they were doing a film, even if they hadn't seen the film yet. Right, right. But it's it's something that that would have been really cool to experience that back in the day because it'd been like a, a full on musical performance. Plus, you're getting a film uh, at the uh, time. Yeah. So, yeah. Back to the actual movie. Uh, who is your favorite Dracula and uh, how do you feel about the supporting cast in this film? Oh, uh, that's easy. I think that uh, Bela is still my favorite Dracula. Um mm-hmm. Let me think about that just for a second. Frank Langella was all right. Um, Gary Oldman was pretty good, but the movie kind of drags him down. Um, I can't think of any other. Well, Chris, Chris Christopher Lee, Lee yeah. <laughs> like huge, well, I mean, you know, he's a huge favorite of mine. Yes, but I yeah. still kind of, I, I watch those Hammer films uh, with, with a bit of uh, tongue-in-cheek. I do like Bella's performance better but i do adore those hammer films um maybe not always for the right reasons uh sometimes i am laughing (laughs) with uh those productions and sometimes i am laughing at um christopher lee's performance um so but i but i I don't think i'm ever necessarily laughing at um bella lugosi's performance he's just so completely committed in a in in a way that's um uh kind of unbelievable and maybe in certain scenes very uncomfortable yeah um, the eyes so, He's, he, nobody had the eyes like he did no 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 um oh and what was your second question so who is so my the, favorite so, yeah of the supporting cast um who, who really oh, stood out for you yeah dwight fry yeah above, yeah absolutely dwight fry as renfield and you know i hadn't realized it for a long time but he was he was supporting cast for a lot of the universal horror films yeah. um and i'm surprised that as far as cult actors go, I, I know that some people are really obsessed with him. My best friend actually has got a little bit of a Dwight Fry um, obsession, um, but he was in a bunch of the Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in the original Frankenstein as well as several of the sequels. Um, and I don't remember all of them, but several other uh, of the uh, universal horror films. I think he was in the invisible man, um, but yeah, absolutely. I his his laugh in Dracula uh-huh. is just so kind of perfect and has often been mimicked and parodied. Um, but somehow they they captured a sound coming out of that actor for that film that really uh, I think successfully communicates madness in in a way that it, 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 I don't know I, I guess I'm at a loss for words or how to describe it but uh it's yeah it really had an impact on me as a kid and uh and still I think of it a lot oh it's it's absolutely brilliant and he he really adds a lot to to that movie and Alice Cooper loved him so much he actually wrote a song on one of his early 70s albums called The Ballad of Dwight Fry and and when he would perform it on stage he'd be in a straight jacket it kind of like you know <laughs> uh, him in the asylum so yeah yeah Dwight Fry Dwight Fry is amazing yeah i mean out of all of the people who've played Renfield like um he looks like someone who would would be mad enough to eat bugs. Like Tom Waits, right? Yeah, Tom Waits. I would I wouldn't be surprised by it. Just Tom Waits eating bugs. But <laughs> Renfield, you know, like I think him as that character. Yeah, he's crazy enough to eat bugs. Yeah, uh, totally get it. 
And absolutely. And and how do you feel about Edward Van Sloan as Van Helsing? Uh, you know, I think I liked him better when I was a kid. And now I don't know. As I say, it's been a while since my last re- re- uh, revisiting of the film. And I do remember that my position on him had changed and pretty mm-hmm. substantially. But I don't really recall well enough to speak to it in much more detail than that. Okay. Um, in general, how, how does Dracula hold up to your favorite monster movies of, of that era? And, and what are your, you know, your top five monster movies? Oh gosh, that's a, that's a tough one. So um, I think uh, as far as representative monster films in the era, I think it absolutely is one of the tops. I think it's, it's, uh, it rises above the, Source material, I think I, I appreciate much better than I do the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's uh, beautiful against just and, and creepy and mostly creepy, I guess now, rather than scary when compared against the other universal films. I think um, universal films in general, however, um, they set a bar during my childhood that often been exceeded um, in horror films since then, I, I think I'm always kind of dis- usually disappointed by recent horror films. Um, mm. They may be scarier. I mean, recent fil- uh, more contemporary horror films certainly scare me much more. Uh, zombie films in particular scare the living criminy out of me. But... I miss kind of the the gothic romance and the attention to kind of period detail um, that were in those movies. Um, Something, yeah, I I think a lot to do with the production designs um, as well as the kind of the social relationships between the characters um, uh, are interesting in a way that is only kind of usually mocked or satirized, even in the more serious period horror films today. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, and I haven't really liked a Dracula film since Bella. Not not completely. Not nearly mm-hmm. as much. Um, At, for the actual Universal horror movies, where would it rank? And then what what are your what are your favorite Universal specific uh, favorite monster movies? Oh, yeah. So it ranks pretty high, but not at the top. Okay. Um, so after having said all of that, I think that Bride of Frankenstein is my top choice. Okay. Um, for so many reasons, <laughs> um, it is fucking hilarious. And it has <laughs> Elsa Lanchester, who yes. I absolutely adore, eating the scenery in a way that is just divine. <laughs> this is just <laughs> Amazing. Um, and I just, I, I, going back to sets, I adore the, the Frankenstein um, laboratory set. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one of, the, one of the things that I loved most when I saw young Frankenstein is that they, yes. they that aesthetic. Um, so uh, Bride of Frankenstein is at my, the top of my list. Um, gosh, I think then it's probably a close tie between Dracula and Frankenstein for the second choice. But um, for now, for right now, I'm going to give Dracula the, uh, the advantage um, okay. uh, because I, I, I revisited it recently. I was really kind of um, in love with the, um, the, the Gothic castle and all of that. Um, uh, Frankenstein after that, uh, the mummy. Um, and then 
Man. I think Invisible Man and The Creature from the Black Lagoon mm. be honorable mentions, but they wouldn't necessarily make my top five. Um, I don't know why. Creature of the Black Lagoon, Creature from the Black Lagoon, I saw not too long ago. Actually, it's probably about 10 years ago in the theater as a midnight showing with a, a bunch of, yeah, as a midnight showing with a drag queen pre-show. <laughs> it was amazing. And I hadn't realized until seeing it in that context how fucking campy that movie is. Now, oh, yeah. I, I put Bride of Frankenstein at the top of my list. Now, that is tongue-in-cheek campy the entire way through. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, for some reason, I, I guess as a kid, I, I wasn't familiar with camp. I grew up in a conservative um, uh, background. Um, so seeing it there, yeah, that movie is fucking hilarious. Um, so, so I have to add those as honorable mentions. I don't think I missed anything. Yeah, so... Oh, unless you want to throw in the Wolfman, but I don't know where that would that would fit I for know, you. I, th- I, th- I think I put him... Number five. Okay. Yeah, Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah. Dracula Frankenstein. Um, something or other Wolfman. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they're 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 all pretty close together in my mind. Um, I I would say Frankenstein definitely had the best sequels. The first three Frankenstein movies are all stellar. I need to watch the second sequel then because I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. That's the one with Basil Rathbone, and it's a little bit longer, and that's where they get the character from Young Frankenstein with the wooden arm. You know, the. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's where that bit comes from. It's a little bit longer than most Universal horror films, but that one, that one's great, and the ending's terrific. Yeah, I do remember that one a little bit better now. I should should watch it again, though. Yeah, yeah, that's Son of Frankenstein. Really well done. Mm. Well, well Maywin, this has been awesome. This is a triumphant return for you, just like Dracula back from the dead. This is perfect. Oh, back from the dead. Actually, <laughs> do we have time for one more little Absolutely. Story? Absolutely. Yeah, so, so as I was thinking about this, I, I knew I was going to tell you, um, I, I had a sense of some of the questions that you were going to ask me. I knew you were going to ask me something about like my first impression of the film, and it made it kind of made me remember something I don't know if I've told you about was um so when I was a kid I found out about the universal horror films really early so like my first lunch back in kindergarten that was universal horror films I was already in love um and a lot of times like when I was playing with kids in the neighborhood like we would play whatever but if I ever got to choose the game it was usually like Dracula or Frankenstein or the mummy which were basically just like versions of hide and go seek or tag you know if we're playing mommy and whoever was the mommy was just a little bit slower you know finding people you know that kind of well, thing of course it's just like so, the regular movie <laughs> yeah this is gonna be some indication of how stupid kids can be <laughs> and how early i saw these films um okay so when when we would play dracula i got myself in a bit of trouble um because we would play dracula and when i was playing the vampire or whatever, I would bite other kids. So this is where I got myself in a little bit of trouble was not understanding like the lines. Yeah, was, gosh, this is like probably four or five at the right. oldest. Um, and so I would be biting the neighbor kids and then the neighbor parents would come to my parents and be like, <laughs> They're like bite marks. <laughs> what are you showing this kid? Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. So you know, fortunately, I figured that 
out a bit. Um, and like as an adult, I think I'm now a little bit more aware of and embarrassed by now understanding how um, uh, kind of uh, sexualized <laughs> the whole Dracula thing is. I mean, not when I was playing as a kid. No, was, no. But Dra- oh, definitely. The original film, I mean, they don't show him actually biting anyone, but the way he brings women into his lair and how he... It totally is sexualized. It always yeah. it always was. Uh, to, to make you feel better, I can tell you a silly story of when I was growing up. It has nothing to do with monsters. It has to do with superheroes. Uh, of course, when, when we were kids growing up, they had underoos, which was like superhero-themed <laughs> underwear. So I decided, well, since Superman wears his underwear on the outside, I went to preschool with my underoos over my jeans. And soon the entire class was doing that. So I had something to hang my hat on. So I don't know what's worse. I think uh, wearing your underwear on the outside might be worse than biting kids. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Okay. So <laughs> um, you weren't the oh, I I. Don't know if this is going to surprise you. You were not the only kid to do that, and yours was not the only school to do that because that happened at my school too. Good. I, I feel much better now. My parents can feel better about me as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I I can honestly say that I did wear my Superman um underoos on the outside of my pants more than once as well. <laughs> I knew we had a cosmic connection, Nayland. I knew we always did. Oh my gosh. Oh, the the secrets that are coming out. <laughs> I know. I, I we better wrap this up before everything yeah. comes out. So yeah. Okay. As always, thank you so much, Malin. Thanks, Brian. Hey, this is Brian Davis, and you might know me from the Damn Good Movie Memories podcast. And now, get ready for the Bad Beat Show on ThatMetalStation.com from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern every Wednesday night. I'm going to play some kick-ass hard rock inspired by the blues, because after all, the foundation of all things rock and metal is, of course, the blues. So join me every Wednesday night for the Bad Beat, because even when you lose, you still win. We are officially on Spotify now, so if you don't use iTunes, if you don't use the Podbean app, you can go to Spotify and get all of our past episodes. You can stream it on there, so if you're a Spotify user, you can go find Damn Good Movie... (laughs) I can't even say my own podcast. Damn Good Movie Memories. Yes, I know what I'm talking about. I'm the host, right? Okay, so go to Spotify, look for Damn Good Movie Memories. You can stream all of that stuff, and yeah, so if you don't want to use iTunes, you don't want to use Podbean, you can use Spotify as well. All right, before we sign off, we do have t-shirts are available for sale. All you have to do is go to TeePublic, that's T-E-E-P-U-B-L-I-C.com, and you can get your very own Damn Good Movie Memories t-shirt. You can get all sizes, any gender, you can get whatever you want just at the tip of your fingers. So just go to TeePublic.com, look up Damn Good Movie Memories, and you can get your very own t-shirt. If you enjoy this podcast and are an iTunes user, please do the show a favor and head on over to the official iTunes page for Damn Good Movie Memories. Be sure to leave a rating and a review. This will allow the show to appear higher in the algorithm and spread the joy of this podcast to the masses. If you are not an iTunes user, you can still listen and subscribe on Podbean at damngoodmoviememories.podbean.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook under our Damn Good Movie Memories page. You can also listen to a limited number of episodes on YouTube. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and be sure to tune in next week for an all new episode of Damn Good Movie Memories. 
I am Dr. Fuck. And I'm the actual alcoholic. And we are part of the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. We are the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. That's right. And the way you can check us out is we are on iTunes and also Podbeam. And we forgot a review recently. I got this review right here. It says right here, it says, Rock and Metal Combat Podcast is the greatest podcast in the world, and it's my number one podcast, signed by Science. Now, and then Science also said... Science! Science also said, my second favorite podcast is, it doesn't matter, the rest suck. Rock and Metal Combat Podcast on iTunes and Poppy. Check it out. Science! Are you ready for the hottest new podcast out there? Check out the Vieira Vault, featuring none other than Dr. Fuck Ralph Vieira. You will hear personal stories and personal songs from the vault. There ain't nothing else like it. The one, the only, the original Vieira Vault. On Podbean, Stitcher.com, and iTunes. Spreaker. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, this is Stephen Michael from the Growing Up Rock Podcast. If you're like me and my co-host, Sonny Hollywood Pooney, you grew up loving hard rock and metal music. Check out our podcast where we talk to bands and artists that help create the soundtrack to our lives, along with playing some killer new and old deep tracks of kick-ass guitar-driven rock and roll. Find us wherever you find your podcast to listen to, that's the Growing Up Rock Podcast, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K. And feel free to hit us up at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Growing Up Rock. So sit back and crank it up. <laughs> 